The reading tonight comes from the end of John's or Luke's account of John the Baptist. And I want to read verse 15 to 20. John Luke 3, 15 to 20. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. Landon Saunders tells a story about a West Virginia farmer who took his three sons to the fields one day. He showed them a plot of ground and he said, this is yours. And I want you to plant corn on it. I'll supply the seed and I'll give you the equipment, but you have to do the work. Well, the sons went to work. They worked hard and in time they got the field planted. Unfortunately, they didn't know anything about planting corn. The rows weren't straight. In some places, the corn was planted too close together. And in other places, it wasn't planted close enough. And in the battle with weeds, the weeds won. Well, the farmer was in town one day, and some of his friends started giving him a hard time about this poor excuse for a field. They didn't know the story behind the cornfield. And the farmer looked at his friends and said, you just don't understand. He said, I'm not raising corn in that field. I'm raising sons. The fields and the assignment were a classroom where his sons were learning some lessons about life. He was teaching them about work and about responsibility, about teamwork, and about the ability to see something true to completion. This was his way of preparing his sons to be responsible adults. Whatever their life's work was going to be, he believed that the lessons they needed to be able to do that could be learned in the cornfield. How do you raise sons? How do you raise daughters? How do you prepare them for life in the world? Well, Luke, in writing his gospel, shows Theophilus, the one to whom he dedicates the book, and he shows us how God prepared Jesus for his life's work, for his earthly ministry, and for his ultimate work at the cross. And that's really the heart of the matter in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, and verse 13. I want to look at the scenes in that passage because I think we'll learn something that God expects of all of his sons and daughters, things that he expects all of us to understand as we deal with life. So to begin with, God sends his son into ministry with a declaration of his love. Look at verse 21 to 23. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. 
And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son, so it was thought, of Joseph. When we come to this scene in Luke's Gospel, it is a time of great excitement and anticipation in the land of Israel. For the first time in 400 years, the voice of the prophet is heard in the land. There's been a long, long silence. But now the voice of God is being heard in the message of John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. John's message is about a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as he preaches this message, the message falls on eager, open, receptive hearts. People come to hear what he has to say. They come from every part of the land. They come from every walk of life. They all head out to the Jordan to hear what John has to say and to receive his baptism. Speculation fills every heart with excitement and with hope. Is John really the Christ, they're asking? Is this the coming one that we have been hoping for? Is God about to give us the Messiah that we have waited so long for? And as we heard in our reading, John steadfastly said, no, I'm not the one. I'm the forerunner. I'm the one who comes to prepare the way. But I am not the one that you're asking about. He is about to come, but I am not he. But the day does come at last when Jesus appears on the scene, when Jesus himself comes to John. And like all of the people, like all of the people of God who are coming to John, Jesus submits himself to his baptism. Luke's gospel is unique because in this account, what happens next happens sometime later. We don't know how much long, longer, but Luke separates Jesus' baptism from what follows after the baptism. What happens next happens afterwards while Jesus is praying. At almost every turning point in crisis from this point forward in Luke's gospel, we're going to see Jesus in prayer. When he chooses the disciples, as he turns his face to Jerusalem, other scenes, we see Jesus at prayer. We don't know what Jesus was praying about after his baptism. But the scene that Luke shows us is that of a dutiful son humbly awaiting the will of his father. Here is Jesus on the edge, on the brink. At long last, the waiting is over. And so as Jesus prays, heaven opens. In the words of one student of Luke, it is as if God himself has come into the scene at this moment when his son is about to begin his work. From heaven, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and we shouldn't overlook the phrase like a dove. He isn't saying that a bird came down. He's saying something that appeared like a dove came down on Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit descends upon him, Jesus hears a voice coming from heaven. The voice that he hears is the one that he has been listening to for all of eternity. 
the voice he hears is the one that said, let there be light, and there was light. The voice Jesus hears is the one that he heard speaking to Abraham, offering him great promises if he would just go to a place that he would show him. Jesus hears a voice that he knows very well. He hears the voice of one that he loved, the voice that loved him. He recognizes the voice as the voice of his father. And the father declares to the son, you are my son. The emphasis is on the word you. My one and only son. You are my beloved. Again, the emphasis is on you. And I am well pleased with you. I think it's important for us to see that God is not pleased with Jesus because Jesus has accomplished something. He's not pleased with Jesus because of something that Jesus has done or even because Jesus is about to accomplish something. What Jesus is, what God is doing is declaring his pleasure in his son simply because Jesus is his son and he loves his son. That is the message that God has for his son as his son begins his work. His son has received the Spirit, who Isaiah had said long ago would anoint him and would give him a ministry. You can turn back to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1, and especially Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1 following. In receiving the Spirit and the Spirit's anointing, Jesus has said, Yes, Father, I'm ready. Yes, Father, I will do your will. And what father would not be pleased to see his child grown and ready to take on his life's works? And so at about 30, with his father's approval and blessing in his ear, Jesus begins his ministry. These words, which came from heaven, were for Jesus. They acknowledge the special relationship that existed between God and Jesus. But it is also true at the same time that the yielded, willing, obedient heart of Jesus is the same heart that God looks for in all of us. It is through obedience to the gospel, as we learned this morning, that we are adopted into God's family in which we become sons and daughters. And when we yield our heart to him and we live before him in faith and obedience, our Father is pleased with us too. That is what he is looking for in us. Well, God intends to test his son's obedience. But before Luke describes that testing, it's almost as if Luke begins his gospel a second time. That's what we find in verses 23 to 38, Luke's second beginning. You see, Jesus' baptism and anointing and the voice from heaven end the time of preparation. Now it's time to begin. So here is Jesus, God's anointed, God's servant, God's obedient son. Luke presents Jesus to Theophilus again, this time by presenting Jesus' genealogy. One of the ways the person in the first century could show his status or his qualifications was by showing his lineage, by explaining who he was and, and where his family had been. And that's what Luke is doing for Jesus here. If you look at this list, you'll notice that there are 77 names on the list. I'm not going to give you a test for the names or or what each name represents. 
Because one of the things that's interesting about the list is that we hardly know any of these people. We know very few of them. One of the things that stands out is in verse 31, and that is that in Luke's list, Jesus descends from David through David's son Nathan and not Solomon. Now, Nathan's place in the list is the same as Solomon's list in Matthew's list, but it's not the name Solomon, it's Nathan. Nathan is the third son of David and born in Jerusalem. He's referred to in 2 Samuel 5 and verse 14 and 1 Chronicles 3.5 and 14.4 and Zechariah 3.24. If you go through the list, you'll notice that the kings of Israel and Judah are not mentioned very much, not the ones who were disobedient. Is God expressing his judgment of the disobedient kings by leaving them out of Jesus' lineage? And it also stands out that Jesus' lineage goes back beyond Abraham. Matthew takes him back to Abraham, but Luke takes him back all the way to Adam. And notice in verse 37 how Adam is described. Adam is listed as the son of God. Luke is making the point that Jesus has a place in the whole human family, not just the family of Abraham. And it's one of the the outstanding themes in Luke's gospel that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he came to save all of humanity, all of mankind from their sins. But the mention of Adam as a son of God in this context raises a point of tension. If you remember the story of Adam, you know that Adam once stood in the wilderness place, in a lonely place. God had once looked at Adam and declared him to be good. And God had once given Adam, his son, a life's work. Gave him a mission to tend and care for the garden. And yet we all know the story of Adam and Eve, and we know that Adam disobeyed his heavenly father. He was a son. But he did not learn obedience. He learned disobedience. So now Jesus stands in the wilderness. He has a mission from God in his hand. And the question is, will this son of God do any better? Will things be different this time with this son of God? Will Jesus obey where Adam failed? So God determines to test Jesus' obedience, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Spirit, returns from the Jordan, and the Spirit leads him into the desert, the wilderness, the lonely places. For 40 days, as Luke portrays this incident, Jesus does battle with Satan. For 40 days, the devil puts temptation after temptation after temptation before Jesus. And as Jesus faces these temptations, he eats nothing. And Luke says, and I think this is kind of curious that he says this, at the end of them, Jesus was hungry. Forty days without eating. Oh, and Jesus was hungry. Well, the climax of Jesus' temptation then comes when he is physically weak. The devil points to a stone and he says in verse 3, if you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become bread. You see, the test is not whether Jesus has the ability to do this. The test is whether he can prove himself to be the Son of God 
by doing this. As one writer puts it, the devil is saying, the Son of God shouldn't be hungry. The Son of God shouldn't be hungry. It's undignified. And he's suggesting to Jesus, you have the power and the ability. Why not make the most of it? Why not enjoy it? Why not relieve your hunger? Jesus is being tempted to depend on himself. Jesus is being tempted to satisfy his agenda rather than trusting God to take care of him. So what kind of son will he be? Will he obey? And Jesus answers Satan's temptation only with the words of Scripture. Verse 4, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. So Jesus will trust God and he will serve God. Then the devil leads Jesus to a high place, verse 5, and he gives him a vision. Jesus in an instant can see the whole world. And the devil says to him, verse 6, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. The devil's in control of everything. He claims to influence everything that Jesus sees. He can show Jesus over and over again the evidence of his power and control. The power and the glory that men and women crave and strive for are all Satan's to manipulate and control and to use for his ends. And he offers Jesus the same power. He invites Jesus to share it. Give me your devotion. Give me your allegiance. Give me your service, your worship, and you can have it all. You can control all the kingdoms of the world, and you don't have to go to a cross. You can have it all if you just serve me, the devil says to Jesus. But Jesus, again, just with the words of Scripture, answers Satan, verse 8. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Finally, the devil takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. Let's find out if you really are the Son of God, he suggests to Jesus. Let's see what God does if you attempt to kill yourself. After all, doesn't the Bible say he won't let you get hurt? Look at verse 10 and 11. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Psalm 91. The devil knows the scriptures. The devil quotes the scriptures. You don't have to die. If you're the son of God, go ahead and jump. Prove that you are the son of God. The devil is saying, there's no need for martyrs. There's no need for suffering. There's no need for a cross. There's no need for a death. But again, the words of Scripture are Jesus' defense. Look at verse 12. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus isn't going to jump and find out what his father's going to do. He trusts his father. He isn't going to do that. He is not going to do anything that would disrupt his father's plan for him. He will serve that plan even when that plan calls for him to lay down his life. And so Luke concludes this scene, this final testing, this final act of preparation. In verse 13, the devil leaves him. He goes away for now until a more opportune time. As God and the angels 
and lost humanity look on in a manner of speaking as salvation hangs in the balance, Jesus battles Satan over what kind of Messiah he will be, and Jesus is victorious. In these temptations, in his response to Satan, he says loud and clear what kind of Messiah he is going to be. He's telling us what kind of son he is going to be. He will not serve anyone but his father. He will not serve anyone's agenda but his father's. He will not accomplish his purpose with Satan's methods or the world's methods. He will not put his father to the test to spare his life. Instead, he will be faithful unto death, unlike Adam, the son of God. Jesus, the son of God, will be obedient to the will of the father. Satan wanted him to prove that he was God's son by his acts of disobedience. Instead, Jesus demonstrates that he is God's son by refusing to disobey his father. Certainly in one sense, these temptations are Jesus' unique experience and no one else's. He is a son of God in a unique way, in a way that though we are sons and daughters of God, we are not. Only Jesus is God's Messiah. Only Jesus could decide whether he was going to be God's Messiah or the devil's. And yet we also know from our own experience that the devil never stops tempting the sons and the daughters of God. He meets us in our own spiritual wilderness. He meets us at our own times of weakness. He meets us at the points of life when life is going hard and is difficult. And every time he tempts us, every time he puts something in front of us and entices us to embrace it, He is asking the question, will you be God's obedient child? Will you obey your heavenly father? Will you do the will of your father or not? The temptations also are similar to the things that we are tempted with. We too are tempted to serve ourselves and to trust ourselves and to not trust God. We are tempted to satisfy our own desires, our own agenda, our own pleasure, our own needs and wants, instead of God's. Second, we're enticed with the glory and the wealth of the world. We're tempted to think that the way to security and happiness lies in doing things the world's ways. And having what the world says will make us secure. And having what the world says will make us happy. Third, we're tempted to believe that faithfulness need not be absolute. And maybe that's the most subtle temptation of all. We're tempted to believe that the call to be faithful unto death doesn't apply in every situation. That there are some areas where we can fudge. There are some areas that are too insignificant for such a high requirement. The question really is not whether we will face such temptations. The question is, how will we handle them? What will we do in the face of them? We can handle them as Jesus did. His commitment from the beginning was to do God's will. His whole life was committed to doing God's will. And that commitment took care of a whole lot of smaller decisions. There were smaller things that came along that that maybe weren't all that important, and Jesus didn't even have to think about it because he had already committed himself a long time before this to doing the will of the Father. How often do we get in trouble because we get caught up in the little temptations and 
we still have questions about the big things. Jesus didn't trust himself to answer Satan. He depended on Scripture. Scripture was his shield and his protection. And third, the Holy Spirit empowered his decision. The Spirit strengthened his decision to do what God wanted him to do. And in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul says it is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. But in all of this, you and I have something that Jesus did not have. We have something when we face Satan that the Savior didn't have. And what we have is a Savior who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We don't face temptations alone. We never face the devil alone because Jesus stands at our side. He stands by us to uphold us in the time of temptation to strengthen our will. We don't have to give in to temptation. Jesus will help us face it. But we also have something that Jesus did not need. You see, Jesus never gave in to temptation. He never sinned. He never disobeyed. But we do. It makes us sad. It makes us ashamed. We wish that it didn't happen, but it happens. We do that. And because we do, our Heavenly Father who loves us has provided us with a way to deal with our sins. If our way is committed to Him, if we are walking in the light with Him, John tells us in 1 John 1, 5-2-2 that we have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus cleanses us. If we confess our sins, John assures us that God is just to forgive. And if we fail to resist temptation, which he encourages us not to do, if we fail to resist temptation and we do sin, John tells us that we have an advocate with the Father, an advocate whose death on the cross paid the penalty of our sin in full, and not only ours, but the sin of the whole world. Jesus Christ the righteous, Jesus Christ the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, our Lord and our Savior. I'm going to finish now with an invitation. If you're going through a time when Satan is having a go at you and it seems like he's winning, he doesn't have to. We know what that's like, and we love you and we care about you. And if that's where you are in your life as a Christian, won't you come forward tonight? Won't you share with us what it is you're struggling with? And let us go to the Father with you in prayer. Let us share that burden with you and, and receive the Father's blessing. If you need God's help, God's blessing in any way. Won't you come while we stand and sing?